Welcome to In the Booth, a podcast by the Frederick News Post. My name is Jillian Telsik, and I cover education. In this series, we're sitting down with each of the 16 candidates for the Frederick County Board of Education. It's a more crowded field than we've seen in many years, and there's been an unprecedented amount of money poured into the race so far. With school board elections across the country receiving more attention than ever, we wanted to ask each local candidate about the most pressing issues facing Frederick County Public Schools. For today's episode, I spoke with Dean Rose. He ran for school board in 2020, and he also applied to fill vacancies in 2018 and 2019. Dean told me he's attended or streamed every school board meeting for four years straight. He spoke about the importance of community engagement, and he told me about some of his priorities, which included special education and staff recruitment. Enjoy the conversation, check back for more in the coming weeks, and don't forget, primary elections are July 19th, and early voting begins July 7th. Today we have Dean Rose. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be here. So just to start out, can you tell us about um, what your day job is and what area of the county you're from, where you live now? Sure. I, I, I live in Iamsville. Uh, I'm an uh, insurance and financial services agent. My office is in Middletown. I've been in Middletown for about 22 years. Uh, I moved up here with my company from West Virginia. So you can kind of still hear the accent from <laughs> Southern West Virginia. Yeah. But came up here about 23 years ago. So. Uh, okay. Wow. Great. And have you ever run for public office before? I ran for this position actually in the 2020 election. Okay. And I actually applied when there were uh, openings to be filled by the county executive in 2018, 2019. I applied both times for that. So I've been very interested in the Board of Education, been attending meetings for going on 12 years. So very interested in what goes on in the Board of Education and finally decided after applying those two times that I would actually run for the office in 2020. Didn't work out the way I wanted it to, but... uh, I was compelled to give it another shot, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, so my second question that I'm asking everybody is basically just why are you running and what are the most important issues to you? And I'm especially interested to hear your answer as basically what is driving this intense interest for you to go to these meetings for 12 years, run and apply so many times. What do you? What's drawing you to this? Well, one thing is I've just always been passionate about education and young people. Um uh, I spent a good majority of my life coaching kids from, I played tennis in college, so I taught Mm -hmm. tennis lessons for a while, I coached basketball, I coached, I was an assistant varsity basketball coach here in the county at Urbana and Oakdale High Schools for 13 years, so I've just always had an interest in kids and education, and I know when you get to my age, you get older, you mm-hmm. really do start, you know, I've raised my kids. Um, they were very fortunate to have, you know, two supportive parents and uh, a lot of opportunity. Uh, you start thinking about your your legacy. So uh, so I've gotten involved with a lot of organizations like the Make-A-Wish Foundation, which obviously supports kids, um, Hartley House. And then I spent six years on the board of directors of the Boys and Girls Club of Frederick County, and I mm. was the board chair for two years. Mm-hmm. So I've just always had a, a strong passion for working with kids. And I've always just been interested in the operation of our school systems, uh, 
how it impacts the funding, how it impacts our education to our kids. So I just started going to the meetings. I feel like if you're going to be a voice in the community, it's important that you go. What I found interesting is over these last many years, and for the last four years, I haven't missed a meeting. Wow. I've either been to every meeting in person or I've watched it. Okay. Of course, during COVID, mm-hmm. we, we were a lot of us watching them. Uh, now, on occasion, I've been out of town and I've actually watched it live from out of town. So, uh, and what was interesting is many times, except when a particularly volatile subject comes up, mostly I was the only community member there. I was wow. the only person in the boardroom without an FCPS badge. Mm. So that's what really then compelled me to run. Because while some of the meetings can get a little heated, I welcome community involvement. Mm -hmm. I welcome some of those people that are coming there to truly advocate for our community and their kids and all our kids. And so I encourage people to come and advocate and learn and understand what's going on. Yeah. So what have you learned from watching all these meetings? I mean, four years without missing one, that's a lot of hours. (laughs) I'm at them every week. I know how long they can go sometimes. Some of them can go for an extended period. My wife thinks I'm just a little bit insane. (laughs) Uh, Because, you know, some of it, you know, when things aren't pre-COVID, some of it we were talking about electric-powered buses and uh, a new roof at uh, whichever elementary school or things like that. But, you know, redistricting and particularly funding for schools, I thought it was very important to uh, to know what's going on locally because I've always also been interested in advocating at both federal and state levels. So I've gone and lobbied on behalf of kids at both Capitol Hill and Annapolis. Mostly that was because of my work with the Boys and Girls Club. Hmm. So we would spend a couple of days every year uh, advocating at both places. So then when the blueprint came up, I started spending more and more time in Washington, D.C., and Annapolis advocating for the blueprint. Okay. And actually got to know David Trone, Chris Van Hollen, and then I've actually met with every member of the Frederick County delegation except for two. Mm. And one of those I met with their chief of staff. So sometimes you just have to sit down with folks and understand their perspective, what kind of biases or echo chamber they're in regarding education, because I just think it's just so important. Um, you know, what, it, what, what mentors and teachers did for me and the reason I am where I am, and I believe the success of my kids. So I just think they are the future, and I think it's important to get involved. So that's why I, want, I wanted to go, and I thought through my advocacy – It would help, and it would also maybe get other people involved. Mm -hmm. So if you were elected, you would be serving alongside the first new superintendent that FCPS has had in about 12 years, I'd say. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like the district is entering a new chapter, and I'm wondering how you would plan to work with Dr. Dyson and uh, what, if anything, you think could be changed or improved as we enter this new phase. Well, I'm extremely excited for that opportunity. Uh, excited, you know, that is, that's, that's a new chapter, uh, having someone with, uh, different perspectives coming in. But on top of that, I think it's very important 
that one of the primary objectives, primary duties of a board of education is supervision and accountability of the superintendent. I mean, that's, that's, I would think that's number one is the empowerment, but then holding accountable the superintendent and ensuring that that relationship is one in which there's shared vision and a mission, but that there has to be an understanding of accountability between the board and the superintendent. So I think this is a really great opportunity to be coming into the position and be able to sit down with a new superintendent and have those types of conversations. Um, I think, you know, I'm in the corporate world, you know, often see corporations will change CEOs. You might say things get stale, relationships fray, or they change. And sometimes it, it's, it's important within corporations that you have upper management CEO changes. And that's often an opportunity for, uh, to elevate uh, an organization. And I'm excited that I think, I told somebody the other day, despite all the issues that are, that are happening, I think there is so much uh, untapped potential in FCPS. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited to hopefully have the opportunity to be part of that. Great. Well, I know one of those areas that Dr. Dyson has said she's going to be focusing on is special education in the wake of the Department of Justice investigation that unveiled a lot of things that were really concerning to a lot of community members. So how would you navigate the continued impacts of the DOJ investigation? And how would you kind of work to rebuild trust or make any changes you might see as necessary in the area of special ed, discipline, restraint as the the school district moves forward? Well, first, first of all, let me say, I think that uh, got to give a lot of credit post-DOJ report to Dr. Mike Marco. I think he has uh, taken it, you know, by the horns and is moving forward on some uh, plans that are very positive by engaging the community. And I think that's, that's what I see as the most important thing, is we have to engage that community. And that's something I think, uh, you know, I've, I attend the CCAC meetings uh, because I think it's important to hear from those people uh, what the challenges are that they are facing. Uh, when, CCAC is Special Education but, Citizens Advisory Committee. Correct. Right? Yes. Correct. Okay. Just for everybody who might not that's know. That's right. That's right. I apologize for using those acronyms. No, it's all good. Uh, but uh, I think it's important to go there and hear not just in the meeting part, hearing what they are discussing, but having opportunities to interact with them after and before sometimes and talk about some of the issues that are that happened and are still ongoing. And uh, I think that's going to be the most important thing is we have to engage with that community to find out what their needs are because it's what what besides what happened, because when that report first came out, I have to admit, as a human being, I had a very emotional response. I think anybody would. Um, so I'm kind of glad that I've learned in my many, many years that take a deep breath, step back for a few minutes, and think before you post or speak. <laughs> so... Uh, I've taken that opportunity to engage with not just parents, but also the educators uh, 
and the aides and the assistants that are involved in that situation to get a better perspective of uh, what happened, what continues to happen, and what the challenges are. And when you consider that, uh, you know, we passed, we passed the law, I mean, in 1975 about giving special education children access to public education. And at that time, they earmarked, said, that the federal government was going to provide 40% of the funding. Well, now we're, tw- what, 47 years later, and they've never done that. They've never provided more than one quarter at max, and I believe this past year the funding was 16% from the federal government. So it's so grossly underfunded Hmm. that we're having a difficult time. And I think what happened, one thing I was disappointed, I mean, many things I was disappointed about the DOJ report, uh, but outside of the personal and visceral Mm -hmm. response, um, you know, I was upset that it detracts from both a local, state, and federal discussion we need to have about the services that we're providing to our special education children. And I think that's a conversation we've got to have with experts, with parents, um, with the resources. Uh, I went to the the resource fair Mm. um, that they held at Rock Creek and spoke to, stopped at every table and spoke to every one of those providers to just find out what, what is it we can do better. And it's, 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 it's training and expansion of those services. I mean, I talked to one uh, autism provider that their wait list is seven years. Wow. They, they tell people, as soon as your child is diagnosed, sometimes as early as age two, three, or four, to apply. That's a local provider? Yes. Mm-hmm. One that partners. Well, they are in their, it's, it's actually state. Okay. It's a, it's a state provider. I think they said they have 1,100 spots, mm-hmm. and of course, they're full, and they are so full that it's a seven-year wait. So they, they said, we are having people apply when they are four, and they will get into our program when they are 11. Wow. So that talks about all the resources and the discussion that we have to have, but we can't ever, ever forget um, the impact that this had on our families and kids, and not to, not to tout you know, pat you on the back too much. But every time I tend to forget that, and I did this the other day, I go back and read your January 7th article about the DOJ report. Wow. Because it, it, it makes it personal. I mean, I'm, Mm -hmm. I I got a little chills thinking about that article right now. Mm -hmm. And one of the, I spoke to one of the parents from that article and it does it, it, as a, as a parent, as a human being, it, 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 it's emotional, it, and, and we, we can do better. Uh, but this isn't, and to, to our defense, this isn't just a Frederick County issue. I, I, would, I would question how, uh, you know, Frederick County, I think, was actually pretty, when you think about how restraint and seclusion was being used, we were actually pretty diligent about documenting it. So it wasn't like we were hiding it. It's just that we were misusing it. So when you look at the other counties, I would argue that there are counties out there who are not properly documenting their use of restraint and seclusion. Because I, 
I've talked to other parents from other districts, and you hear the stories. So I think Frederick County now has an opportunity to take a terrible situation and turn it into something where we could be a leader if we do this the right way. And I think that's got to be one of, obviously, it's the top priority, obviously, for the current board, but it can't ever be allowed to slide back down, uh, you know, the agenda. Mm-hmm. So earlier you had mentioned that um, board meetings aren't super well attended by the general community unless there's a particularly, I think you used the word volatile issue on the agenda. Um, so one of those more controversial issues in the last couple weeks has been the family life and human sexuality curriculum. I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. The district says that it's just following state guidelines and that it's trying to make the curriculum more inclusive of all sexual orientations and gender identities and that it will do that in an age-appropriate way. But then there are people who are really angry about these changes and think that they're not age-appropriate and that these are conversations that should be happening in the home. So I'm just curious where you stand on that right now and, and what you think about how this discussion has played out in the community recently. Well, I guess I'll start with the end. I haven't been very pleased with how it's played out in the community to start because we really haven't been allowed to have a real conversation about how our county plans to achieve the objectives that were passed down in the framework from the Maryland State Department of Education. And that's exactly what happened, is they passed down actually a framework that was approved and voted on in 2019, prior to the pandemic. But they had kind of delayed it, obviously, uh, due to the pandemic. Uh, I know other districts, I know for a fact that Montgomery County has already implemented a significant portion of that framework. Um, But most others, they paused it. Uh, So I'm I'm disappointed that, you know, obviously right off the bat, as soon as it it hit the agenda for the, you know, the the family life uh, advisory committee, um, they weren't even allowed to have a discussion. I mean, it became so volatile. They weren't even allowed to discuss and explain what the process was. Because now if you go to subsequent meetings, like the curriculum instruction meeting, you know, the curriculum instruction meeting, uh, Dr. Cuppet did an outstanding job of explaining what's in the framework, what the process is, how long it's going to take. I mean, we're talking about a curriculum process of six to eight months in which they're going to involve people who are years and years of training in building curriculum around kids and age appropriate to meet those objectives that were sent out by the state. And I think we've got to give these folks the opportunity to do their work. When we're talking about six months out, if we're interrupting meetings and, and granted, I'm, again, I'm open to civil discourse, civil discussion about any issue. But every statistic, every survey tells us that the issues contained within the objectives are necessary. We have got to address the issues that are affecting our kids. I mean, this is what it's about. This isn't about, you know, it's like I always used to say in athletics. Athletics is great until the adults get involved. 
until mm. parents get involved sometimes because sometimes we just got to let things play out and kids adjust a lot better than sometimes we do with our you know pre-notions that we've built up our bias that we've built up over over years and years and years and education is all about building blocks you know, I hear people all the time saying, why are we addressing these issues? We don't teach pre-K kids geometry. Well, no, of course we don't, because we teach building blocks in order to get them to geometry, which is exactly the same thing that's going to happen with this curriculum. We're not talking about, you know, what really disappointed me was that early on, as soon as this was introduced, there was some, some direct misinformation that hit social media. That's really what got people so fired up that that led people to believe this was some sort of sexual identity education that was going to be introduced at our lowest levels. But if you really take a look at the framework, and I posted online, I used an example of like the first grade curriculum, and I think I think I wrote 43, there are 43 sections among six units that are going to be discussed in that curriculum. So there's one unit with five sections in it that talk about recognition of gender and how to treat people of other gender identities. That's it. That's all it is. And then, we weren't even allowed to discuss it, Part of the discussion that they were going to have was an opportunity for opt-out of that particular unit. So, personally, based on statistics, when we look at the second leading cause of death for young people is suicide. Children who don't feel affirmed based on their gender identity are anywhere, depending on the, the report that you look at, anywhere from four to 17 times more likely to attempt suicide and, a, and to be successful and at younger and younger ages. So we, it's something we have to address uh, as a community. And absolutely, age-appropriate is important. Communication and collaboration with our parents because bottom line is we can we can teach this all we want, but if they go home and it's blown off or taught the opposite, it's not going to be effective anyway. So it's important to have parental and community involvement in order to make this successful. And when we're talking about, you know, the exclusion and ultimately sometimes the the death of young people over something that we know we can solve. That's, we can't let that happen. So um, I, look, I look forward, if I'm elected, I look forward, to, you know, it may well come up for final approval right around the time that we're, we're placed. So I look forward to the, you know, the, the conversation both with the curriculum specialists and with our community. But it's an, it's an issue that is is too important so mm. so another issue 
that, uh, kind of switching gears a little bit, has been talked about a good bit at the board meetings, not quite as divisive, but um, a lot of board members and staff have been expressing concern about how relatively low our staff pay is compared to neighboring jurisdictions and, and other counties in the state. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that, any pol- potential solutions to maybe mitigate that and, and address some of these concerns among staff about recruiting and retaining a workforce? Well, per- personally, I, I think out, outside of the things that, you know, are are thrown upon the board, that, you know, they're all like this, the, the curriculum and things like that. This should be priority 1A. Recruitment and retention of our educators and staff should be priority one. And as you said, every contiguous district, including Loudoun County, Virginia, has a higher starting salary than Frederick County. Arguably the fastest growing county in the state of Maryland, one of the richest per capita counties in one of the richest states in our country. So we have got to work on our funding formulas in order to make ourselves more competitive. Now, the thing is, I talk about state and districts, but we've got to be more competitive with our neighbors. Um, I have have a very good friend through coaching that uh, he's, I think, 16 years in. Uh, He's looked, you know, you can't blame him. He's looked at Montgomery County. He has Mm. his master's degree. He has multiple hours after his master's degree. He's looking at between a, Fifteen and twenty thousand dollar raise, wow. just to transfer over to Montgomery County. We cannot lose that type of experience. We have got to address that issue. We have got to address that issue with our delegation when they go to Annapolis to speak on our behalf. I mean, if you've had the opportunity to do the kind of campaigning myself and a lot of other candidates have done, every time you turn down a street. There's another new neighborhood going up. This county is exploding. And we have got to get together with both our county delegation, our county council, our county executive, uh, but in particular, our delegation to the state and our federal delegate. Because I've had conversations with David Trone that that have gotten knocked off kilter because of the pandemic. But um, we have got to talk to them about our funding formulas. Uh, when you think about a lot of a lot of the extra funding is based on free and reduced meal percentages and Title I schools. And Title I schools get some amazing funding, and, and you can see the results of that. And I think that's something we need to talk more about is when you see what's working, <laughs> you provide programs and funding to Title I schools, and it works. Why aren't we, just because this child who is living in poverty or falls under the Alice, you know, the asset limited report, mm-hmm. um, falls in that category, just because he goes to a school that is not Title I, why aren't we providing those kids the services that we provide kids that happen to be in schools that have 80% free and reduced meal, which qualifies them for Title I funding? So we need to talk more about that, about how our uh, 
socioeconomic situation has spread some of our kids throughout our county, and they're spread across our schools, which limits our funding to our broad spectrum of schools and hurts us. Now, on that other other part, I talked to David Trone, and he was open to, prior to pandemic, he was open to looking at federal funding in which the federal government would match blueprint dollars for every state that passed blueprint-like legislation. Hmm. Now, what I'd like to do is get with him, and let's revisit that now that we're somewhat emerging from the pandemic, but it's time to start thinking about those issues again. And if we could get that kind of funding in response to states that are taking uh, action, because one of the top priorities is teachers' pay and a, and a teacher's ladder for their career, a career ladder for teachers is in the blueprint. Well, we need to fund that. But we do have to think about ourselves as Frederick County because of all we're doing under the blueprint, if we're giving all teachers in the state of Maryland 10%, that means we're still behind all the other counties. So we've got, to, we've got to expand our reach. We've got to expand our reach outside of the state. You have to also think about Maryland is in the, Maryland, the state, is in the top 10 in the country in compensation for teachers. Mm. So why aren't we recruiting outside the state of Maryland? for maybe established teachers. I mean, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina all pay less than the state of Maryland. So why aren't we recruiting there? Why aren't we going and selling the beauty of coming to Frederick, Maryland, to come and live and, live and work in Frederick, Maryland, beautiful place to live, and maybe make a little more money? Mm -hmm. um, I think that's the best way we can also work on our diversity. I had these conversations directly in the last election with Dr. Alban. It's very difficult when, let's say, you only have uh, eight people of color graduate from Towson with degrees in education in a given graduation class, and you're competing with a hundred other districts that have the exact same goal that you have. Yeah, you're you're jumping ahead of me. <laughs> so. I was, yeah. I mean, that was the next thing I was going to ask about was supporting students and staff of color. Um, we've had an incident recently at Middletown Middle School where three students are facing hate crime charges in connection with a racist image that was shared on social media. And then we also have a teaching staff that does not mirror the demographics of our county, which has gotten a lot more racially and ethnically diverse over the last ten, fifteen years. And understandably, the, the teaching workforce has not really changed at a similar pace. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that issue and any potential solutions you would pursue there. Well, I think I, I touched on that, mm -hmm. is that I think we've got to broaden our perspective. We've got to broaden our search areas. We may have to look into why wouldn't we offer, you know, consider offering relocation bonuses to get people to come here. Because ultimately, we're competing because everybody is facing the exact same thing. Um, we've also, you know, we also have the Teachers Academy that we've got to really sell in our community to have more and more kids enter that profession. But we also have to begin looking at what type of aspects we're putting out in the ether, out in the media about teaching. 
If you look at the attack on teachers, fewer and fewer kids are going into teaching. I mean, there are universities across the country that are actually dropping their teachers' colleges because there aren't enough kids to justify having it open. So, again, this is another national conversation. I think somebody somebody made a comment at a board meeting that the roof is on fire. I said, the building, the entire house is on fire. This is a five-alarm fire nationally that we have to have a conversation about rewarding, uh, building up our teachers. I mean, I've seen, I've seen reports where, you know, when, when we're constantly in the media and in social media, teachers are constantly under attack. It's no wonder as you exit high school and head into college, you're thinking, really? Is that a profession I'd really like to go into? Low pay, low respect, little support. We have to change that. So that's what we can do here. We can do that here. We can affect their pay. We can make sure they're supported locally by our staff. And we can work on the fact that, I mean, I, I, I may, not a joke, but I make the comment that the first months of the pandemic, there were tweets when kids first went remote, parents tweeting out, whatever teachers make, double it. Teachers deserve a million dollars a year because parents were having to stand in mm-hmm. and do what teachers are doing. Well, then we got a year and a half out. And suddenly that all turned and we started demonizing teachers because we were having to wear masks or because some of the schools weren't reopening as quickly as maybe they should. That had nothing to do with teachers, but we were demonizing the teachers when teachers in most cases, I met with a lot of teachers during the last election that were screaming, we have to do better on remote learning. We need to get back in the classroom. We need to figure out whatever it is we need to get back in the classroom. So we have got to build back up that respect for that position. When you look at other countries or other jurisdictions that are having success, it's highly educated and respected. They're on the level. I mean, we always use some of the Norwegian countries, Sweden, Norway, countries like that as comparison. But that's just it. Teachers are respected on the level of a doctor, a lawyer, a high-level business person. They're educated at that level as well. Um, and we have, to, we have to do that. I mean, there is, only, there is only one profession in our world that touches every other profession. Teachers touch everybody else. So they are the building block for everything we do. You know, I tell people when I think about my business, I think about kids and families are our customers. But teachers and school-based staff are our greatest resource. And we've got we've to support them, reward them. We have to listen to their input because who better knows what's effective in the classroom and with our students than them. So we've, you know, we've got a new, we have a new HR director, mm-hmm. Ms. Baptist, and I think we have to empower her to do what's necessary to get out there to recruit and retain. Um, rumor, you know, like I said, you, you hear it, We've made it too hard to sign on teachers when other districts are at job fairs offering contracts on the spot. You know, FCPS was saying, we'll get back to you. Well, 
we have to be prepared to do that. When we find a great candidate, particularly diverse candidates that want to come to our, our community, uh, and I'm, I'm talking about candidates of all colors because our Hispanic community is exploding mm-hmm. and our English language learners are struggling. When we test, they're struggling. And every kid, every statistic tells us that every kid does better when he has interaction with someone in his educational life with someone that looks like him, that shares his culture. And we just, we just have to make that a priority to work with our human resources department and our recruitment and retention and make sure that's the number one priority. Because as we learned when the school bus drivers didn't come back, mm. every piece if that breaks down and we're learning it in special education right now because we don't have our assistance, we don't have, we have a shortage of special, special educational assistance, that, that breaks down. And when you lose a piece of the puzzle, um, it, can, it can break and bring down the whole house. So it, mm. it's, it needs to be priority one. All right. Well, as we get ready to wrap up here, I just want to ask you why you think you are one of the best choices for this upcoming election. We have a really crowded field, 16 candidates. Um, That is the most candidates that I'm aware of in recent years. I'd have to go back, you know, farther than 10 or 15 years, but at least in that time frame. So why should people pick you? Well, I know as far back as I've been going, this is the largest field we've ever had. Um, I mean, I talk, I, talk about, I talk about three things, you know, the quick things on my flyers and things like that are, you know, passion, commitment, and experience. I feel like, obviously, if they don't get it from this, I have a lot of passion for working with young people and making our community, our community, not just our school system, but the benefits it brings to our community, our whole community successful. And so I feel like I can, I, you know, I'm not going to lose focus. I'm not going <laughs> to... I have a passion to do this. Um, then I think I've shown that I have the commitment. I mean, I've been I've been attending meetings. I mean, long long. My kids, you know, are, have graduated, but did the K through twelve thing with my kids and attended meetings. I was one. I was. I admit, I was one of the parents probably long time ago. We were involved in PTA and volunteering in the schools, but school board we probably didn't. Budget time, I would show up, but. You know, once I decided to make this commitment, once I honestly, once I got involved in coaching, it became important to me to how are we benefiting our kids? So I started attending meetings more regularly. And then obviously for the lack, I said, for the last four years, I haven't missed. And I've attended a lot of committee meetings. Um, I try to click, you know, into the agenda every week, uh, look at all the uh, information that's in there, trying to read up, uh, try to prepare myself as best I can to be an, uh, a valuable member of the Board of Education. Um, so I think I have the commitment to do that. And then experience. I've worked for a Fortune 100 company for 37 years. I've served in just about every possible role you can imagine. I've been on committees. I've been on corporate boards. Um, so I, I understand We a lot of people say, well, you can't compare you know, the corporate world with the uh, government, you know, we have to, we have to work on a balanced budget, but I, I, I believe that we can bring in some perspective from both corporate 
And then for the last 22 years, I've operated a small business. So I understand what it is to run on a budget. Um, I don't think people have as strong an understanding of how difficult it is fiscally for schools. Uh, when you talk about 83.5% of their budget is already spoken for, that goes to our people. Uh, and valuable, necessary, it has to. But that, you know, that leaves 16.5% that then we have to do the things that are important. So I think it, it's valuable to have someone who has that type of experience in both um, budgeting, being fiscally responsible. Uh, also, I, I, obviously, I work in a customer service-oriented industry, mm -hmm. so it's important to listen and realize that we all come to the table with our own bias, and we all kind of can sometimes get caught up in our own echo chambers. And... I think it's important both to accept your bias, but then hear others. And that's what's been encouraging to me over the past three years running for this position is that I can sit down with a lot of people that I may have strong disagreements with, but we can sit down and have a civil discussion about it. And I think that's something I'm, I have. And then the board experience. I, I think that there needs, you know, if anything... And this is systemic criticism. This is not criticism of individuals. But I think too often the board gets caught up in paralysis by analysis. They're constantly kicking the can, kicking the issue, and when decisions need to made, be made. And we personally experience this in our relationship with the Boys and Girls Club, with FCPS, that things tend to get drug out for months and sometimes years I think if you go back and look, you know, they're just now revising the Citizens Advisory Committee. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a committee that was actually formed back in 2015. But the issues that they were bringing were not getting the support, I think, were necessary from the board because they just got so much into this paralysis over we want to analyze everything to the nth degree. And I just think there are sometimes you have to make decisions. And that's what you learn in the corporate world. As long as you share the vision and the mission to benefit your kids, your families, your community, you've got to pull the trigger. You have to make decisions that are going to benefit our kids. Because the one thing I'll end on mm -hmm. is the thing I'm going to ask every time a proposal is brought to me by staff, they better be prepared to ask, answer the question is, how will this benefit our students? And if they can answer that question, then let's get into it and let's make this decision. If they can tell me this is what it's going to do for kids, then we need to get it initiated and we need to get it started. So, Great. Well, Dean Rose, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm.